You've ever been in a broken down elevator? Ever been there? What's your first reaction? What's your first response? Are you the person that bangs on the door? Are you the person that yells and screams? Are you the person that's trying to crawl out of the top? Are you the person that's thinking maybe with another person of a strategy to get out? Are you the person who's calmly in the corner who picks up the phone and dials the one number to connect with the right people to get you out of that elevator? I wonder in life, when trouble comes, I wonder in life which response represents you. Which response represents me? I'm often like the guy banging on the door, the guy yelling for somebody to help me, the guy trying to figure out my own way. And yet there is a connection, particularly for the believer in Christ, that you have a direct line to the one who can help you. This is what prayer is. Prayer is a grace that God gives us to communicate, intimately communicate, and have connection with him in all kinds of seasons of life. God has given us a way to connect with him through prayer. We've been studying James. I don't know if you remember the first week when we were in James, but one of the things that church history tells us about James is he had a nickname. He had a nickname, Camel Knees. He had a nickname, Camel Knees, because apparently this was a guy, this was a pastor of the first church of the world who prayed a lot, so much so that he had calluses on his knees. I don't know how you want to be remembered, but those who know you, those who love you are in church history, but that would be a great way to be known. And when you open the book of James up, what you see in the very first chapter, he goes right into trials and tribulations. But he says this in, in verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom in a trial, ask of God and he will grant it. But when you ask, don't doubt that he can answer. And so all the way through the book of James, what you see sprinkled in by this camel-kneed pastor of his church is you ought to be a praying people. You ought to be on your knees praying. And it's interesting that that's the case because James is a book of action. If you like action to your spiritual life, James is the right place to come. And yet he's a man of prayer. And in the last few weeks, what we've seen, we've seen in times of trouble, first century church, the churches that were around Jerusalem, what we see is that they were mostly poor and persecuted. And there were people who were wealthy, unbelieving landowners who were cheating them out of their pay and making it very difficult for them. Injustice 101, right there in the text. And they were also being harmed. The Bible says in the ch- end of chapter 4 that they were being physically harmed because of this. And James has two answers for them. Last week it, it was this, be patient. Be patient, waiting on the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your hearts. Don't grumble and complain. Don't swear by heaven. And this week, he's got the second one. First, patience. Second, do something. Pray. That's his answer to the trouble that we face as they face in the first century as well. So go there, James chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 13 through 18 this morning. And James is going to answer four questions. He's going to tell us when to pray He's going to say who we should pray with, what and how should we pray, and last, how do we right-size our prayers? What are the expectations that we ought to have when we come to God in prayer? So four questions answered this morning. Let me read it for us. Um, In your Bible, on the end of the row, if you don't have one, uh, page 1013. I think we've been on that page for a while. 
1013. So verses chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. I'll read it, follow along, and we'll unpack it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently or with energy that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Look at verse 13, and this will answer the first question we have this morning. First, when do we pray? Look at verse 13. What does it say? Anyone suffering, pray. Anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Listen, we should be a praying people in all the circumstances of life. So here's your point. Pray when you're hurting and pray when you're happy. In all the circumstances of life, we ought to be a praying people. In their case, they were a praying people in their trouble. And, you know, I didn't plan it this way, but tonight, in this text, this text says we should pray and we should give praise, and we're going to do both tonight. I, didn't, I couldn't even set it up that good. But look at the word you get there for suffering. I want to expand on this word. This is a general word for suffering. This is any kind of affliction that comes upon you. This could be the trouble that they're in. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It could be spiritual. It's a general word for affliction. And it's interesting when you think about this in the Bible, right? You, when you look at the book of Psalms, for example, when you look at the book of Psalms, what you see are Psalms of lament. A few summers ago, I think last summer you looked at the book of Psalms, you saw Psalms of lament, which means Psalms when you need God to work and things are troubled in your life. And you also see Psalms of praise. But one of the interesting things about the Psalms is you see both, sometimes in the same Psalm. Sometimes you see even David giving God praise and lamenting at the same time. And this is the reality of life, right? In the same day... You can be praising God for something cheerful and good that's happening in your life, and in the same day you can find out something happened and you are in a rough, rough place. This is the nature of life. There is a mixture in our lives almost daily because we live in a broken world of both cheerfulness as well as suffering, or well as affliction. This is true in the Psalms. You know, there's a place in the New Testament in the book of Acts um, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail because they're sharing the gospel. Anybody ever been there? I haven't. They're sharing the gospel and they get thrown in jail in Acts chapter 16. And the Bible says this. It says that they were both praying for deliverance and singing praise to God. So when, when do we pray? We pray when we're hurting. We pray when we're happy. We pray in all circumstances. The Bible also teaches us that prayer is one of the ways in which God dispenses his sustaining grace. So one of the ways we, we have access to grace, I'm not talking about saving grace, I'm talking about sustaining grace. One of the ways you have access to grace in your life is through prayer. You remember that time where Paul was praying? He prayed three times that the Lord would take this physical thing from his body. He would take this thorn in his flesh. And he prayed three times and the Lord said what? He prayed. Did he answer his prayer? He didn't answer his prayer. And what did he say? 
My grace is sufficient for you. So even when we pray and God doesn't answer our prayer in our affliction, the fact that we're praying brings about God's grace for the season. And maybe the best example that I could give you in the New Testament about how God uses prayer to dispense sustaining grace to your life and to my life is the example of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. And I think we have that passage there in the back. Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, Text before us is Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's died on a cross for our sins. And it says this from verse 15, chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Aren't you glad? But one in every respect who's been tempted as we are. This is Jesus, yet without sin. But look at verse 16. This is glorious. Excuse me. Using my hands. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? To the throne of grace. That we might receive mercy and find grace. When? In a time of need. God dispenses His grace when we pray. So we ought to be praying when we're hurting. We ought to be praying when we're happy. Let me ask you a question, C3. Are you tapping in to the deep streams of God's grace that He's provided you in prayer? Or are you trying, as the Bible would say, to drink from a cistern that has holes in it, that fills up with water and then empties itself? Are you trying to figure out your own solutions to your problems, like the elevator? (laughs) Are you coming to God in His grace through prayer? You know, if I took a survey about our prayer lives, I'm not going to do that. I probably wouldn't get many answers back. I get a lot more out of COVID, I think, than I would prayer. It's kind of, you feel guilty. I don't know anybody that says, hey, I... I think I pray too much. (laughs) I don't know anybody who says that. And yet when we start talking about prayer, you see people's faces. All right, we start talking about prayer and evangelism. We do like this. You know, I don't think any of us intend not to pray necessarily, or most of us. I don't think many of you in here go, you know what, I'm just not going to do that because I don't believe in that. But one of the reasons I think we don't pray is because we don't plan to pray. Think about this summer. Some of you took summer vacations, and some of you are spontaneous, so maybe this doesn't apply to you, um, but many of you are planners. What do you do when you, plan, when you go on a summer vacation? You have to do something to plan. You have to arrange where you're going to stay in the Airbnb or wherever you're going to go. You have to arrange transportation. You have to pack. You have to leave. You have to come back. You have to ask for time off at work. You plan that vacation out. One of the questions I would have for you this morning, are you planning to pray? In your life, as you think about how busy, and I look at a lot of parents even here that have kids and the busyness of life, are you planning to pray? And you'd say, well, pastor, you know, the Bible says just pray all the time, and I agree. I agree, but sometimes I can attest that that's a cop-out to go, hey, when am I going to get on my knees and pray to God? When am I going to do that? And oftentimes when I look back at my life, especially as a spiritual discipline, this is the weakest area of my life. I'm just going to be honest with you. Pastors say, don't tell your church too much about yourself. This is a real struggle for me as a spiritual discipline. And so I'm speaking to myself as I speak to you. But when am I going to plan to pray and humble myself before God? It's a means of grace that God has given us to know Him and deal with the stuff in this broken world. The second thing I would say is this. Sometimes we don't plan to pray. And the second thing is, is we may not have the right perspective about prayer. When I was in college, I got about six months in, and I would call my dad every so often. Um, And my dad, at one point when I called him, he said, look, 
I am glad that you're calling me once every like month. Um, but I'd really like to talk to you. <laughs> I'd really like to talk to you. Because when you, when you call me, there's usually two things going on. You need more money, so you're calling me for something. Or you want to tell, you, so you want to tell me something you need that you don't have. Or you're, you're, you're calling me to tell me something good that happened on the golf course. And, and then he said, I'm glad you're doing that. I want you to keep calling me, but can we talk about something more than something good or something bad that's going on? I think sometimes in prayer what happens in our lives is, is we often look at it like this. We often look at it as if prayer is a spare tire and not a steering wheel. Prayer in our life is a spare tire, so when something happens and, and, and that blows out in our life, then that's when we go get the spare tire and we pull out prayer. Or when things are going really great, then we're praising God. Corrie ten Boom said that. She said it this way. What a woman of faith. Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? So, C3, let's be a praying people. In all occasion, leaning into the streams of God's grace that he gives to us. Let's plan. And let's have the right perspective on prayer. So, when do we pray? We pray at all times. When we're hurting, when we're happy. Who do we pray with? Well, I just pray by myself. This text tells us to pray with some people. I want you to look at verses 14 through 16. Now listen, verses 14 through 16, there's a lot of interesting things in verses 14 through 16. We're going to get to them. Oils and healing and prayer and faith and calling on the elders, there's a lot of interesting stuff in those verses. But I don't want to miss the big picture of a glorious truth because we get into the weeds of the forest. I want you to see the big picture of verses 14 through 16, and I promise we'll go there, but I want you to see the big picture. Here's the assumption that James makes about his church in verses 14 through 16. Look at it. 14 through 16. He makes this assumption that people are bringing prayer to the shepherds of their church. People are praying for one another when they have sin in their life. So there's a big picture that we could miss here that's really important. Here's, here's your second point. Pray with your shepherds and pray with your church family. But there's an assumption that James makes here that they have these relationships in this community where they're praying together. They're confessing sin to one another. They're taking their needs to the leadership of the church, the shepherds of the church who are called to give watch over the flock and pray for the flock and care for the flock. They're putting each other on each other's back, as it were, when they are in need, where they're in the foxhole and they're hurting. A brother or sister is coming alongside and say, I'll put you on my back for now. And I'll walk with you through the season that you're in. When your marriage is blowing up, when you're sick, when you're hurting, that we're here for one another. That's what the church is. That's the big picture. There's assumption of depth of relationship and honesty, a willingness to share my needs in the church. And we might say, well, I've been burned doing that. You know, when I asked the elders to pray for me and got, that turned into a gossip session around the church. I don't know about you, I grew up in a small town, and so I'm sometimes pretty leery about airing my dirty laundry because when you grow up in a small town, what happens is everybody knows everything about you. And in church, especially in a smaller church, you, you may worry about those things, but there is an assumption here that the community of these believers in Christ who are walking and living in fellowship together are open with one another. This is what the church ought to look like. And so I don't want to miss that as we come. I want to give you a text, and it's a glorious text. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's the story of the paralytic. 
You know that story of the paralytic? It's really a story about the paralytic's friends, isn't it? You think about what happened. Here's a man who needs healing. He's a man who needs healing, but he can't get to Jesus. And so his friends take him to Jesus. And they get there, but they can't get in. And so they take the next step. They take the friend and they lift him up and they lower him down into the room where Jesus is at. Those are friends who put their other friend on their back and take them to Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? He doesn't say to the man when he heals him, your faith has healed you. He says, their faith has healed you. This is what it's like for a community of faith. When someone is hurting, when someone loses someone in their family, when someone is pregnant, when someone has a miscarriage, when something happens in the church that we say, we're going to bear you up and we're going to care for you and we're going to take you to Jesus because that's what you need. That is a great picture of what community looks like in a church. So prayer is a means of grace. Community, praying in community is also a means of grace. Let me ask you, are you willing to share prayer requests with other people around you that you trust in the church? Are you willing to go to your leaders and say, I am weak, I am sick, would you pray with me and for me? Would you bear me up? And are you willing on the other side as a church to come along somebody and say, I'll get down in the foxhole with you and we'll walk through this together. That's the picture of the church. And one of the neat things that I've seen here, and I've been here a year, but one of the neat things that I've seen here, even for us, is people are willing to reach out and say, would you pray for me about this? Would you come over and pray over me as an elder in my church for this? Text, emails, please, please pray. So let's get to the oils and the sick and the elders and the healing and all that stuff. But I want to make that big point because that's the direction which this text I really think is, is taking us. So look specifically though here um, about verse uh, 14. And I want to just walk through this. So look at your Bible there or look up at the screen. Is anyone among you sick? This is really important. First point is this. Surely they're talking about physically sick people here. Okay? And I think you see that bear out as the elders come and anoint with oil. But this word that we get for sick here can also be translated weak. So spiritually weak. So it can be a general term. You see it in Romans 14 verse 1. So spiritually weak or weary. And so it, it surely has an emphasis on physical sickness, but it also has an emphasis on any kind of weakness or weariness that you have, that you need somebody else to bear you up. And so that's important, especially in context, because these are people who have been in trouble, and so they are weary, and they are weak, and many of them have suffered physical harm that's come upon them. And so that's the context, and that's important when you come to this text. Maybe you've not heard it that way, but it encompasses both of those things. So let's keep going. Let him call for the elders. Those are the shepherds, the overseers, the people who are supposed to be caring for the sheep, the people in the flock. And it says this, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Call for the elders. The implication is the elders are probably going to that person's home because they are weak, because they are sick, and they can't get there. So elders... So Jim and Wheeler and Brent and Chris and me, 
at Christ Community Church, if you call us and you are physically sick, or you are spiritually sick in your mind, and you can't bear yourself up, and you need help, we would come, and we would pray over you. Now look at it. It gets interesting here. Anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. There's a lot of paper that's been um, used, a lot of trees that have died over what this means. Anointing him with oil. When you look in the Bible, there are three or four different types of, Um, three or four different things that happen with the anointing of oil. People are anointed with oil when they become the king of Israel. For example, David was anointing with oil. You see it ceremonially in like a sacrament in the Old Testament. And you also see in that day, if you lived in that day, um, essential oils would be what you use for your ailments. And so this was medicinal. In that day, think about it all the way through Scripture, even Mary anointing Jesus' head with oil, it was medicinal. It was meant to to calm. It was meant to heal. And so it may be medicinal, but I think the bigger picture is it's also symbolic. It's symbolic of of the Spirit's work in our lives when we are sick and when we are weak, that God is the one who works. And people do all kinds of things with this text. People focus in on one kind of oil or the other that you get at the Christian bookstore or you don't. Um, The point is not the oil. Um, The point is that God has called us as elders, for example, to pray in this way over people. And so we take God at his word. I don't pretend to know what's happening in that, but I'm going to pray in faith, believing and not doubting that God can, if he desires to, heal that person of spiritual weakness or physical weakness. And that's what's going on. And then it says here, so so the oil, I think, could be medicinal, but it's likely a overall symbolic of the Spirit's work in healing. So the prayer of faith. James has already talked about not doubting in prayer, trusting God to intervene. And then it says that God will raise them up. Listen, this whole thing isn't about me sprinkling something somewhere or me praying a certain way as an elder. It's about God working because God is going to raise them up. Whether he raises them up in the last day after they die or right now, God can heal as he wants. He can heal through medicine, interestingly, if it is that. Interestingly, James doesn't see a problem between medicine and prayer. Both work. Because ultimately, in both of those situations, God is working. God is at work. He's the one doing the action. He's the one raising up in this situation. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, there was a young man, and he had all kinds of gut issues. And he called us. And he asked us to come pray over him. He was about to go through a major, major surgery. It, w- it could have been a life-threatening surgery. And so as elders of the church, we went to his home, and we talked with him, and we anointed his head with oil, just olive oil, no special oil, just olive oil, because this is what the Bible says to do. And we prayed over him, and we also, look at the text, it says, talks about confession of sin. We get a little nervous here when we come to this confession of sin and sickness and healing. Um, and so we asked him, we said, hey brother, are there any, is there anything in your life that, that could have, not does, but could have caused this to come upon you? Is there any sin in your life? Because some suffering, the Bible says, not all, but some suffering is because of sin. Remember in 1 Corinthians, 
They were taking the Lord's table. This may cut down on the Lord's table taken today, I don't know. But they're taking of the Lord's Supper. They're taking communion. And people are in sin and they're taking communion. And the Bible says they are taking in an unworthy manner. And that's the reason some are sick and some have died. Our communion number is going down today. But seriously, there is some sickness. There, is, there are situations in where suffering and sickness have something to do with sin. Not always. And we'll get to that in a minute. I'll give you an example. But we prayed over him, but we asked him, is there anything that you need to confess to the Lord in this that might have brought this along? And he said, no, I feel like I'm confessed up. And we prayed for him and we left. And you know what? Um, in that instance, after that, He's still struggling with those things. And yet we brought comfort to him. I don't pretend to know how it all works. I know that God is the one working. He gives the prescription and we follow suit. Listen, let me give you kind of a theology of healing or suffering, if you will, because there's a lot of questions that come out of this text. There may be a lot of questions for you personally as you've had hardship or sickness come upon you, or maybe you've experienced other people that come to you and say, hey, the reason you are sick is because you have sinned. What do you do with that kind of stuff? And so if you want to write it in the back of your Bible, um, if you want to write it down on your notes, I think this would be helpful for you. I'm going to give you kind of a biblical theology for a few minutes of, of how this works. First, I've got to say this. The first thing is this. There's this thing called original sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, you know what happened right after that in the garden? There was decay. Because of sin, there is death. Because of sin, there will be death in all circumstances. Unless Jesus comes back, you will die. There is decay that happens to your body. It also means in the brokenness of the world, after sin, what you see is sickness and disease and all kinds of problems and all kinds of conflict that produce sickness. And so this is what we see in the scripture and it contributes to that. So you live in a fallen world and in the end, even if God heals you at some point from something, whether it's somebody praying over you or, or going to the doctor, in the end, you will still die. Be encouraged. Number one. So there's an original sin that means that there is suffering and death in the world. Number one. Number two. Sometimes there is a direct link between suffering and sin. Like I said a minute ago, I gave you the example of how sin and suffering, there is a direct link. There are times that that happens. The Bible unpacks those. Number two. But sometimes there is no link. Many times, maybe most times, there is no link between a person's sickness and their sin. Because you live in a broken, fallen world. Number three. So, number four. And this is maybe hard to, to digest. But God, it is not God's will that everyone be physically healed in this life. Perhaps you've experienced that. Perhaps you've experienced someone that you've prayed fervently for for a long time. And you asked God to heal them and they weren't healed. And they passed. What do you do with that? We know that's not always God's will to do that. We pray that. I pray that. I'll go to somebody's house. You can come to mine. And I will pray that over you and you can pray that for me. 
So I pray believing that God can heal, but oftentimes that is not God's plan, and we'll get to that in a little bit as well. Yet, does God heal in this world? Should I pray that God can heal people in this world? Yes. Yes. Listen, there's a whole theology out there, and it's a sermon in and of itself, and if I get going, I might not stop, so I'm just going to mention it. There's a prosperity gospel, a word of faith gospel that says this. It says the reason you're sick is because you're in sin, and the reason you can't get healed is because you don't have enough faith. You know who that puts the emphasis on? It puts the emphasis on you. And the reality is it's God who chooses one way or the other. And I can't think of anything more abhorrent to the gospel of Jesus Christ than to say to someone who has cancer, let me tell you something, if you would just pray this way, you'd be healed. Or if the people around you or your elders would just pray with faith, then you will be healed because God doesn't want you sick. He wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's out of step with the gospel. God can heal, and he does heal. But when we make God our genie, and we invoke the name of God on what we want, and we say, the reason you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. And that is so far out of step with the gospel, and I'm going to stop there. Listen, let me wrap this up, though, in the second point. Are you sharing and bearing other people's burdens in the foxhole of life. See, the church is meant to first be a lighthouse and also a hospital. Ray Ortland says it this way to his people, and I think he uses this almost every week when people come in the doors of his church in Nashville. He says this, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Listen, the church is a hospital. It's a place where you can come and be cared for and loved on and lifted up where your burdens can be bared by other people. And guess what? There's often going to be times when you bear burdens and then you're going to turn around and you're going to need somebody else to do that for you. A number of years ago, there were three or four circumstances of life that kind of came upon our family. And when you're a pastor of a church, you tell everybody else how to do this and how to do community sometimes. And then you... You don't really practice what you preach because you're the guy that's supposed to be telling everybody else to have community. (laughs) And then it had to happen to us to where we had to open up and say, this is what's going on. This is what we need. Will you love us? Will you bear us up? And it was one of the most beautiful experiences of our life to have brothers and sisters in Christ in our church care for us and bear us up. Listen, we all need one another. It's a grace that God gives us. Let's be that kind of church, C3. So, when do we pray? All the time. Who do we pray with? We pray with our church family. We pray with our elders. How do we pray? Well, I don't know how to pray. How do we pray? Look at the example he gives with Elijah here. We pray biblically 
Here's the thought. We pray biblically, we pray expectantly, and we pray zealously or with energy. This is what you see in the life of Elijah. It's a beautiful picture. He gives a great example of the point he's trying to make. Look at verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Isn't that great? (laughs) He's not Superman. He's, He's a guy like you and me. And if you go read about Elijah, he had many weaknesses. He ran from people he shouldn't have run from. He was weak like you and me. And he prayed fervently. Literally, the word fervently means with energy. He didn't pray like, all right, lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord in my soul to keep. I'm not saying that's a bad prayer. I'm just saying, you know, the ritualistic prayers that we go through sometimes at the dinner table or wherever because we just need to pray and we're praying some prayer. No, he prayed with energy, believing that God would do something, that it might not rain. Here's the thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, here's where where Elijah prays biblically. And if you don't know this text, you might not connect it. But he prayed that it wouldn't rain. Is that something that Elijah just came up with on his own? He's like, okay, they're not obeying. They're an idolatrous nation. They've turned away from God. And so I'm going to come up with some random thing that I'm going to pray against them. Because I'm upset because they're running me off. That's not how he does it. Deuteronomy 11, God had already said this to the people of Israel who were supposed to be going into the, were going into the land. And he says, if you love me and you keep my commandments... There will be blessing. I will open the heavens and it will rain and you will have wine and you will have oils and you will have grain and there will be grass for your livestock and your crops and there will be blessing. But if you're deceived and if you turn your eyes to the other nation's gods and Canaan, remember, if you turn your eyes to them, I will shut the heavens. If you're going to be an idolatrous nation, I will shut the heavens. There will be no produce, no fruit, and I will kick you out of the land. And so Elijah is praying biblically. He already knows what God has said. I'm going to shut the door of the heavens. And so in 1 Kings 17, chapter 1, this is exactly what Elijah says. He talks to God. He says, the rain's going to stop. And until I say it's going To start again, it stopped, and it stops for three and a half years. So he's praying biblically. And then you come to the end of chapter 18, 1 Kings 18. I made a note. If you want to go read it, it's a great passage. You come to the end of 1 Kings 18, verses 41 through about 45, and he goes up to Mount Carmel, and he's got a servant. And he got Ahaz on the corner over here. He said, God's going to send some rain. Go look to the sea. And the servant says, there's nothing there. (laughs) And he says, pray seven times. Pray seven times. Comes back over the seventh time that he prayed for rain. He said, there's this little cloud in the distance. Looks like a man's hand. And Elijah just drops the number right there. And he just says, look, Ahab, you better get down this mountain because it's about to rain. If you don't get down this mountain right now, this little cloud... Right now, you're not going to be able to get down it. And then the Bible says, the clouds got dark like that. And immediately, a heavy, heavy rain came. Elijah prayed biblically. He prayed expectantly and zealously. He prayed fervently with energy. 
Spurgeon, I love Spurgeon, he said it this way about prayer. Think about this word picture, y'all. Prayer pulls the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely ring the bell for they pray so lazily. Only way Spurgeon can do this. Others give only an occasional jerk at the rope, but the one who communicates with heaven is the one who grasps the ropes boldly and pulls continuously with all their might. That's how we pray. We pray like Elijah. We pray continuously. Are you pulling the rope boldly, energetically, and continuously? See, the believer has the power of prayer. How do you pray? What are your expectations for prayer? And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, Pastor, I pulled the rope for a long time. And it didn't seem to work. So I'm not really excited about pulling the rope a lot because my expectations will be dashed. I think we've all been there. Struggled with trusting God and His wisdom and believing in Him. And that's why I want to give you this last point. The last thing I want to say to you about prayer, and this is a really important one, we've got to pray trusting We've got to pray trusting God's sovereign will and wisdom. He has a sovereign will and he is infinitely wise. I think I'm pretty smart. I think my way is the best way. But ultimately, do I believe that God's way is better than mine? I pray a lot of things. But when you come to verse 14 here, do you see the little phrase in verse 14 at the end I think of verse 14, and they're anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Here's how we sometimes use this idea of the, in the name of the Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, and in our minds sometimes that means, you know what, whatever I just prayed, God, I'm invoking God's name, and he's got to do what I tell him to do. <laughs> we might not think of it that way, but sometimes we do. In our brains, in our hearts, I prayed in God's name, he's going to do what I ask him. There's a difference there in praying with faith. And praying like that, that we're just invoking something we want and we're putting God's name on it so God has to do it for us. And it's actually the opposite when we pray in the name of Christ. Pray in the name of Jesus. You know what that means? It means that everything we just prayed is subject to the will of God. That we're saying, I'm asking for this. I'm asking for healing for my friend. I'm asking for COVID to go away. I'm asking for that hurricane to go some other direction. I'm asking that I can keep this job. And when you pray in Jesus' name, it means this is subject to what God has in store. Because he has a will, and sometimes we find that the way that we pray may not match his will. So we're praying trusting. We're, we're a trusting people in the way that we pray, because otherwise God is just our genie. That we rub the lamp and we ask him, and he's got to do what we want him to do, but that's not really the way it happens. Or maybe, you know, in the old Coke machines, I think Coke, Coke machine, old Coke machine was like 25 cents. It's like a dollar now. You ever put the dollar into the Coke machine and you hit Coca-Cola or whatever you like and it doesn't come out or something else comes out that you weren't asking for and you do it again, you put another dollar in and it doesn't happen and you're banging on the Coke machine or you're kicking the Coke machine and you walk off? 
Sometimes that's the way that we treat prayer. When God, we put what we put in and it doesn't produce what we want out, we kick the can and we go, go on our way. And we stop pulling the rope. See, our prayers are in subject to his will and his wisdom. And sometimes I have to say, I'm glad. I don't know if you've prayed for some things and later on you go, man, I really, the theologian Garth Brooks is right. I thank God for unanswered prayers. I want you to think about all the prayers that you prayed. You think about the ones that God didn't answer the way you wanted them to. And how good that was for you. See, I think God answers prayers in three ways. He answers prayers yes, no, and slow. (laughs) I've spoken to you about a, a prayer journal. I've got a prayer journal, and the way my prayer journal works is on one side of the page, I've got a line through the middle of the page, and it's things I'm praying for, for other people, for me. And then I've got a space on the other side to go, okay, when is God answering this? So I pray for these things. Oh, pastor showed me how to do this. Pray for these things, and I keep praying for these things, and then when God answers, I get to write it down. And to me, that's a great way to see God answering prayer. But you know what's interesting about that journal? There's a lot of yeses. I can look back and check it off. There's a lot of yeses in that journal, and that's a beautiful thing. There's a lot of no's. <laughs> there's a lot of no's in there. There's a, and then there's a lot of no, but this way. And guess what? That was a check plus. That was better than what I prayed. And then there's the things that I've been praying for for 10, 15 years that I'm just still praying for. And I'm waiting. So we've got to trust God and his will in prayer. And that's huge. You know why? Because in our hearts, what happens in our hearts is this. We tend to kind of move this category of God's promises to us over. And we have this other, there's this other category in scripture, or maybe not even in scripture, in our minds that God has promised me all these things. And then you look at the Bible and you go, no, those, those don't really, those aren't really promises. Those are just what I want and maybe need or think I need. And we flip those and say, no, God's promised me this. And we've got to check that. We've got to check that in our hearts. So prayer is a grace. Praying in community is a grace. God is, wants us to pray believing, believing that he will answer prayer by faith. But in the end, we're praying in the name of Jesus. And what we pray is subject to his glorious will and his wisdom that is better than any wisdom that we could ever imagine. You know what a sheepdog is? You know what a sheepdog does? Sheepdog is used by ranchers and farmers and old school, used by shepherds. Sheepdog is one of the most trained dogs on the planet. And it goes and it rounds up, whether it's cattle or sheep, and boxes them in and moves them around. Have you ever watched this? You can go on YouTube and watch a sheepdog. It's fascinating. You see them moving animals around, but you know what a sheepdog does more than anything else? He comes back and back and back to his master's feet for instruction. Go check it out sometime. This is what a sheepdog does. And you know, I think that's the way it is with us, with God. We need to be a people who continue to come back and back and back to the master's feet for instruction. And the way that we do that is come to him humbly in prayer. So your takeaway today is stay at the master's feet. This evening, 
got an opportunity again to come back and worship and sing. Got an opportunity to come back and pray. And maybe this afternoon, maybe you do this. Maybe you think about the things that you need to pray for. Maybe you think about the things that you need to bring to God and confess. And we come together tonight, together as the body of Christ, the community of weary saints sometimes, saints that lift each other up, and we sing praises tonight together, and we bear each other's burdens. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for prayer that gives us access to your throne, your throne of grace, that we can find mercy in times of need. So, Lord, we thank you for this great gift. I pray that we would be a people through your spirit that would use the access that you give us. And many of us probably feel unworthy because of sin, because of circumstance, because of maybe how long it's been since we've prayed, but yet you are there. Even James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That you are there, you are always there, that you haven't moved that we can access your throne as believers in Christ because of Christ, the mediator between God and man, that we could pray to the Father, that we could pray through the Spirit and by the Son. So Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your throne freely, oftenly. We pray that we would do that and really believe that you are a God who works through prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.